Welcome to the Creators on Comics podcast. This podcast is a conversation between two creators, dissecting the craft and technique that goes into creating comics. This episode features two writers, Mario Candelaria and John O'Diener. Mario is the writer of Fogline and Kilchella. Jono is the writer of The Inevitables and Monster Bounty, and they both have stories in the Western anthology Off Into the Sunset. I asked them to come here together and talk about all of their works, and here's their conversation. Hey guys, my name is Mario Candelari, I'm a comic book writer, and I uh, recently put out a comic called Fogline, which was uh, funded through Kickstarter, and I have uh, Kilchilla coming out from Scout Comics this fall. And with me is uh, John O'Diener. Hello, I'm John O'Diener. Um, I am a comic writer from Michigan. I will be featured along with my friend Mario in an anthology called Off Into the Sunset, curated by Brent Harshman. And in that, I have a story called I think I'm done. And I've had a few uh, anthology stories as well as a comic called The Inevitables. But Mario worked on something awesome called Fogline. I want to dive into that a little bit because Fogline is a really interesting story. It has several mixes of things that I love or I am surrounded by. Uh, so for example, my wife is obsessed with true crime. It's the thing I hear all day. I'll get out of a busy day of work. And then I walk in the room and the TV's like, and then he was brutally murdered and his head was cut off, found on the side of the highway. But, and I'm like, all right, I'm going to go uh, grab some coffee and go back to my office. And I'm going to just like decompress and not watch this instead. <laughs> so, but it's funny because like true crime is such a massive thing right now. So my question to you is, is that kind of a thing in your life? And is that what inspired uh, this kind of a story? That's a, that's a really great question. Uh, True crime is not as much a part of my life as it used to be. Um, I recently moved offices and in my old office, I could listen to podcasts all day, but now I'm in a shared space. So I don't get to listen to them. Um, going on probably close to a year now, I haven't listened to them. But when we came up with the idea for Fogline, um, which honestly, it, it hit me during Thanksgiving dinner, hanging out with the family, this idea came <laughs> fully formed. Um, but yeah, I was listening to not quite a series as much as... Um, a general show called Stuff They Don't Want You to Know, which kind of delves into a number of things from serial killers to secret government areas. Um, that whole thing is kind of fascinating of how we're kind of reverting back into how media was consumed, where it went from, you know, radio to television, and now it's going back to that audio format. Uh, long story short, I guess podcasts were kind of a part of my life. And the reason I asked you, so one of the characters, like, it's very much, a, let's call it the dichotomy of, an older generation, which is like, what do you do? I work with my hands. I do this stuff. And then a younger generation, which is I live by a screen my whole life. <laughs> like, you know, I'm playing with an iPad. Like I'm watching like very literally children, like three-year-olds just get handed an iPad in line at like Taco Bell and then just poke around and somehow know how to get to YouTube and watch videos and stuff like that. So I guess like in addition to the true crime thing, uh, was was that kind of like an influence on the story where it's like this generational gap and then how I feel like there was like a heartstring thing for a little bit before you kind of like rip that heartstring apart later in the story. Yeah, I mean, um, my wife and I, we don't have any kids, but we have uh, a young niece and I know that they try to, her parents try to minimize her screen time, but that is something I've seen in passing through friends. And also when you go to restaurants and go out to eat, you'll see uh, families and they'll just hand a kid a screen, you know, and just get them to focus on that while, you know, 
whoever the adults are, you know, enjoying their meal. Um, that is an aspect that we thought would would work. You know, uh, Henry is uh, the lead character and he's an older man and his grandson, uh, Arlo, uh, of course, is a teenager. Like you said, it's kind of like a generational aspect, right? Kids know how to do stuff automatically or older folks are just like, well, how did you do that? But also, you know, uh, he worked with his hands to put together some machinery, whereas this kid might not have known how to do that. So I guess just looking at how people are in real life is the real influence of that. I think part of it too, that makes the story interesting is there's there's almost like a distraction. So you you don't realize the thread that starts going through the story because you're like, oh man, the grandpa went through some intense stuff. You know, you're seeing these flashbacks, you're seeing all that kind of stuff. And then little by little, you're like, it's telling the story of, oh, this is why that happened. So I guess the next question more so is when you're looking at a story like this, or you're writing a story like this, like wh- where does this foundational concept come from? Like, what was the thing where you're like, I got it. Like you have that little aha moment and then you start writing. I think for this, we worked with the premise first of what if, what if there's a secret that you have that you realize is the investigation of the source of entertainment for other people, <laughs> you know, and that's mainly what it is. It's a, it, it's a, not a murder, but it's a hit and run accident that happened and the guy in the heat of the moment covered up the lady's death by burying her in the woods and 40 years later this has you know haunted him and he thinks about it and now it comes up unexpectedly in the form of entertainment for someone else um it's it's not too different from when i grew up i come from a military family my mom's military my uncles has served war all of them served you know various wars uh, and you could just see something in their eyes sometimes you know, you know, not to talk about it <laughs> or someone's distant, especially when they just came back to crap. Uh, someone's distant, you know, or there's uh, something that could trigger them. And you just can tell that they're not there right now in the moment. They might come back into and you can see the life come back into their eyes. But trying to work something like that of trauma and repressed memory and I guess the funk that it can put you into. That's what we were going for for Henry. Not to, I guess, dig too deep into your personal psyche, but do you have having like were you like a quote-unquote military brat at all or like was that part of your background or was it just you happen to have family that were in that world yeah no I stayed in New York uh we didn't go around anywhere pretty much like my mom went to war in Iraq and Afghanistan so she left me home I I stayed once with you know her wife and my grandma and you know took care of her this is pretty much just that I wasn't going from base to base to base but I did spend time you know day trips going to family events all across uh, up and down the Hudson River for military bases yeah, it's just being around people. And you could tell once they start talking, especially once barbecues go on for a while, that they have this shared bond. It's a bond that I don't share with them, but through osmosis, you kind of pick up and know about more things. So you kind of tell, you know, a veteran who's been around, like, oh, I kind of know what you're going through, even though I haven't been there myself. Well, I, I was talking to someone recently about, without getting too deep into their story, but it was a story that involved like a football player and this like, hyper-specific trauma that someone goes through that you might not realize, right? So one thing I find really interesting is if you hyper-focus on a type of person and this life that they live that might not be relatable from, through some degree, it is relatable because you know someone who knows someone or you're related to someone who's related to someone, right? So for me, for example, like I don't, I honestly don't know, aside from one of my cousins who was really in the military, So it's always interesting reading that kind of stuff where it's like PTSD trauma. Um, And then like later in life, working with people who are veterans 
And even if you can quote unquote, pretend you dealt with something that they dealt with, you probably can never actually imagine what it's like. You know what I mean? No. Yeah. So, so this is a two part. The first part is, do you kind of use those, those, let's say the human connection or those human story beats in your stories uh, when you're describing people. And then part two is the segue into the comedy stuff. Cause I know that you have a background in that as well. And we all know that like <laughs> trauma, tragedy and bad bummer things lead to funny situations. Cause we have to learn to make fun of ourselves. So Let's talk about the first one. Uh, have you kind of learned to like use that in a positive way in your writing? Yeah, I mean, a lot of it's empathy and a lot of it is being able to just listen to people. If you could just sit down and listen to how someone talks or how they are, especially if you spend a lot of time with someone, you can really pick up on their general isms, but a lot of it is honestly just taking time to shut up and listen, right? <laughs> What's that saying? Uh, Someone will always tell you who they are. You just have to wait a few minutes, something like that. Yep. Um, growing up, you know, I was told, you know, to sit down, be quiet. The adults are talking. You know, don't talk when the adults are talking. So you just got to pick up on a lot of little things. And then, uh, you know, I rolled that over into comedy as well. Uh, a lot of the stuff I did was observational humor, as well as picking at my own foibles. So I tried to do third person observation on my on myself that I can make fun of. But yeah, it's it. A lot of it is just like empathy, picking up on human emotions, trying to find some way to to connect. So even though you did not go through a specific thing, you can see how it's affecting someone, and you know, uh, find a way to relate. Even if it's just you know lending a sympathetic ear, or giving comfort, or you know, finding a way to to talk with them on on a level that you feel that you can both understand. And I don't know if you're like me, where sometimes I feel like an alien in the sense of I love being in a room. And then so similar to what we're doing, but I will do this at like a family gathering or like a party with friends. And I'll just like pull someone aside and start talking and asking them questions. And part of what I'm doing is trying to better understand, I guess, humanity and getting like more in tune with it. Right. So mm -hmm. I'm like obsessed with people's differences in the sense of like you have this little quirk that I noticed where like when someone says something, then like their eyebrow moves a little bit, like those kinds of things where I'm like, I'm just constantly absorbing, oh, I could put this into a character or I can have this show up somewhere in something at some time. Um, yeah. So like, I guess when you're having like conversations with people as someone who enjoys or creates like, let's say observational comedy, do you kind of feel like you're like in tune with that kind of stuff all the time when you're talking to people or do you have more of like a switch where it's like an on and off, like, I'm in this mode. I'm paying attention now. Oh, hundred um, percent. My wife hates it because I spend so much time with her that I know <laughs> I can kind of figure out what the stimulus is and what the reaction will be for anything. <laughs> so I will do something and then I will write on the beat, say exactly as she's going to say her response. But no, like you said, you like to go to family gatherings or hang out with people and just pull someone aside and talk to them. Um, I can't do that with family. I have to be the smart ass sometimes. Uh, family group chats are a riot when they're fighting and I just chime in with reaction gifts that no, they just go unappreciated. <laughs> but yeah, when it's just strangers or not really blood relatives, I like to take time to talk to them and, you know, see who they are as people and get to know that. And sometimes it is for character research that I can file away. But in the moment, it's just, you know, uh, I talk about myself all day. So it's nice to hear from someone else. When you say you talk about yourself all day, what are you, what are you talking about? 
like personal stuff. I talk to my wife all day, pretty much uh, at work. We talk about how our day is going pretty much live in the moment. Or if I'm driving to the office and I see something, I'll talk to her. Uh, at the office, I have my team. We have a small team, so it's not really a whole lot. So we just talk about things that we're doing. Like I'll talk about uh, the comics for a bit and I'll talk about uh you know work stuff for the most part i don't want to get into the boring stuff but you know just like a little accomplishments that we have um when you're around especially during covid the same people pretty much day in and day out it gets a little hard to try to come up with new things i feel <laughs> so it's just you know oh, hey how was your day how was your night what'd you guys do what'd you have for dinner this 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 and then kind of just rinse and repeat Yep. <laughs> so when I meet someone new, it's like a puppy. You're just like, oh, hey, you know, what's this person? What are they all about? I didn't guess what you were going to say. That's amazing. <laughs> like you're talking about observations and I, your one comic here, sorry, uh, that is uh, Hope. That is a beautiful short story. And I want to know the genesis of that because it's, uh, if, I, if I'm calling it correctly, it's about a little girl with a father figure and she's being told no throughout the whole story. And that's that natural curiosity of children where they want to know things. But I feel like it's, this comes from a sense of, I guess, society not really dulling that curiosity, but kind of tampering it down in little ways. Is that how you felt with when, like when you're just observing people in public as well? Yeah. So that, that specific story was in uh, Hope, a comic for Flint. Uh, mm -hmm. It's an anthology we did for the Flint water crisis. That was my first... Mm -hmm my first comic slash first thing that ended up getting published. So source point press put it out and essentially it was a group of my friends and I, and we were like, all of us talk about wanting to do comics and then we don't do it because we're like, wouldn't it be cool if, and then insert all the excuses after. So then I was like, I curate stuff all the time. I'm going to pick those five people, five artists, five writers, pair them together. And then I was like, also we're doing this for charity. So now we all have to do it. Here's the deadline. And I like, it was one of those things that naturally happened. So it was funny because I was so in like business mode, how I always get where I'm like, I could come up with all this stuff. And I'm like, ah, what's my story? <laughs> like, I got to figure that part out. And I was like wandering around and I think I was at a grocery store. And, you know, you always see like, um, like parents and their kid and they're like, where did you get this? You get it from the store. But how does it get to the store? I don't know, a truck, a truck delivers it. And then the parents are like pissed off and they're like, like, and they're, they're not like, I'm here to educate. They're like, all you do is ask questions. This is so annoying. And I was like sitting there just like watching it happen, like in front of me in line. And I was just like, wow. that's so funny because when you become an adult, it's like, no, you just shut up. And then you don't ask questions because that's what you're supposed to do. But when you're a kid, you're so naturally curious because everything yeah. is new, right? You're not jaded. You're not burnt out. And my thought was like, what if those very simple things are actually the most thought provoking things you can hear? And one of them, my thought was like, and this is like pre COVID and all that stuff, but like in Flint, for example, it was during the water crisis before like the Black Lives Matter movement, like the, the second wave, let's say. So we had like one or two cops for the whole city. Like I'm not exaggerating, like on patrol for the, for Flint period. And the police presence was like such a strange thing and no one really knew how to understand it because like it's also rated the most violent city in America. It was for like over a decade or so. So oh, it's, okay. for cap it's, a, it's a whole, Flint is a crazy story. And that like simple childhood curiosity thing got my brain going. I started like connecting different dots. So one of them was like, 
well, if you say like, why does he have a gun pointing at a cop? And then they're like, well, they stop bad guys. And then they're like, but no bad guys have guns. And that's yeah. like one of those lines from, like, I actually have a skateboard behind me somewhere that has that panel on it. Awesome. But that's one of those thoughts where it was like, I think we get so um, numb to adulthood that mm-hmm. we very much forget those like simple inquisitive things are like kind of life-changing thoughts. And when we allow ourselves to think that and ask those questions, like, oh, you could have some kind of innovation. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's like, I don't know if you've experienced it when you just pass by someone and you just say, Hey, how are you doing? Any answer outside of good? How are you is kind of met with like, you know, like a sideways head turn. Like no one's expecting you to actually answer it. Just want to say good and move on to the next thing. No, that was, that was really cool. Especially that whole, like, don't bad guys have guns? Just the guys look like, (laughs) no, that's just, I mean, you're talking about, you know, observations and that's a beautiful example. So how long did it take you to write that honestly from like beginning to end? Cause that wasn't that many pages, but the thought you put into it seemed like, yeah, it was a, a good amount of research. For, for me, it was, it was one of those things where the most, <laughs> the most complicated thing was just laying out the panels, like the descriptions, but okay. the dialogue, I actually, it, it was almost like Tom King's approach in the sense of like, here's this, like, here's a few lines that like go across something. And mm-hmm. then you like fill in the rest after. Um, okay. So my thought was I actually wrote it out as like, standard dialogue first and then i like plugged in where the panels go and the layouts and all that um okay which is one thing that i i, I realized i like naturally started doing because my background is like in music journalism and writing lyrics for bands and all that kind of stuff so yeah. i was like oh well like quote unquote dialogue first lyrics first whatever that thing and then everything kind of like formulates around that idea so the pacing doesn't get interrupted because the story is intact and then you just start like filling out the blanks around that. So the words were very natural and quick. And then yeah. the laying out stuff was the like grunt work. Cause again, that was my first like, oh, an artist is actually doing this. This isn't me like writing it and then like keeping it secret for years, <laughs> which I did for everything else leading up to that. Oh, that's really interesting that your approach is dealing with, let's say just musical terms, you're dealing with the bars first and then the tempo. Because I'm the exact opposite where I will lay out, I, I kind of know where the story's going. So I will lay out the panel descriptions and then, you know, figure out how many pages I have and then tailor the dialogue to fit those panels. So that's really, that's really interesting that you do it that way. Well, so I, I do it differently depending on, let's say the scene, right? Okay. So my super nerd approach is like big picture story beats. And then I'll be like, here are 20 or 22 pages. And then this is the sentence that happens on like sentence, meaning like full description of that page. And then I start zooming in and zooming in and zooming in. But one thing I'll do is like from page four to seven or four to eight, I mm-hmm. want there to be this like captivating conversation. And it's funny because um, this guy, Mark Sable, I took a, like a comic writing class from him. And one of the things he said was like, go to Starbucks, go to an airport, go somewhere that's public, and then just like camp out and eavesdrop and write exactly what you hear down. So one of my assignments was literally transcribing, which I did for interviews for years. So I was like, I can do that with normal people. Hell yeah. So including their, uh, uh, like any of their quirks when they're talking, like Mm -hmm. writing those out with M dashes and doing all that. So that opened my brain up to like, if I want to do, if I want a real conversation I'm not going to try and plug it into an existing layout. I want that to be what dictates the layout around it, you know? Mm-hmm. So it's, it's, but that only works sometimes. If you do everything that way all the time, then you might be uh, sacrificing, let's say, the, the full story arc or something. Yeah. 
I mean, it's kind of funny you did that while transcribing interviews. Um, for my day job, I work in an office and I host a lot of meetings and I transcribe, I, I pretty much do the notes at lightning speed as as the uh, guests are, you know, talking on the various topics. Um, but like you said, you kind of have a sentence of what goes where. For that, I have a, uh, I have all the topics we're going to talk about and then I try to fill in kind of like a script. Uh, so that, I think that's pretty cool. Uh, approach that you took like I guess putting your putting your experience in in music journalism that way well and it's funny because like I remember years ago and for those who don't know my background is like music all day so like I graduated high school got in a band was just in bands forever and along the way I was like I need to I need to do other stuff and that's kind of when that itch happened because I was like I like writing I did MySpace blogs where I was like here's a daily tour journal those became a thing and yeah. I did stuff for like absolute punk and then like, it like started going to like these different websites. And then I was like, oh, I think I'm blogging and I don't even know what that is. Like, that's cool. And then yeah. someone asked me to do my first like true music journalism thing from that. And I had no idea what I was doing. So what I used to do was, uh, by the way, I did see you spill something on your shirt. And I wanted <laughs> to let everyone know, even though it's an audio podcast, um, yeah. Mario does have uh, water or liquid of some sort on his shirt. He tried hiding it, but now we have the audio proof that it is there. Um, that's why I'm wearing a black shirt because I can't spill stuff on it because maybe I, maybe I'm covered in goo and you have no idea, but hey, I have a black yeah. shirt on and I'm fine. You know, we should get a, uh, a splash drop on audio for that. Just to- <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say, you're looking for a pull quote. Let's talk about some goo on my black shirt. <laughs> um, but anyway, I went way off topic cause I'm me. Um, no, it's cool. but, but more so in the sense of like, I think with music journalism, I was so untrained. Like so many things I do, I kind of like trip and fall into. And I'm like, I got to figure it out. Like constant imposter syndrome kind of thing. But more in the sense of, I I used to transcribe or faux transcribe interviews. And I would like kind of write some notes down. And I didn't realize that interviews are like, you use actual quotes from people. It's not just you kind of remember stuff and then write a story. (laughs) Yeah. I was writing stories about our conversations and not interviews. Uh, and then this, this is a weird thing, but the end of the story is, uh, on Tumblr where I was writing my stuff, someone wrote me an anonymous message one day and said, I'm sick of your fucking long form faux articles that don't actually say anything. You need to learn how to do proper journalism because it's not helping anyone. And someone just sent me that on Tumblr anonymously one time. And I was like, oh my God. And then. It's funny because I was like, I don't even know what I'm doing actually. Like, it's not like <laughs> kind of right. Like, yeah. so whoever who's never going to listen to this, who secretly hates me, hey, but, but that made me go, I'm going to learn stuff. And then I started yeah. like researching, reading stuff, whatever. And then that got my brain going, oh, it's important to tell a story and have dialogue and have those things live equally. Because if you do one or the other, it's sacrificing something else. So that is kind of how I like, tripped and fell into like, oh yeah, I could do comics because I just have to. <laughs> I feel like doing the interviews is kind of like your almost famous moment where you are the enemy, but you're also on tour. So. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so Mario, you have a story called Kill Cella. And it's, it's a very interesting thing because as a musician myself, it's funny reading a thing where, uh, so my, my split brain is like marketing and music, right? And 
it's funny watching this because again, like similar to what we talked about earlier, there's like this obsession with cell phones and taking mm -hmm. photos and glamor and that kind of a thing. But then the fun is when you uh, start murdering those people, <laughs> uh, which seems like, you know, tends to happen in this book. So Kilchella is uh, a super fun read. Um, do you kind of want to just talk about like what inspired it? Uh, I, I will admit it took me an extra second to go like, oh, that's why the music is like Co Coachella. I'm stupid, but also murders. That's sweet. So kind of talk about like where that came from, why you talked about it. Uh, so this one isn't as convoluted as Fogline. I knew exactly where this came from. I was online. I saw an article about people who spend tens of thousands of dollars to get Coachella ready. And I was thinking, this is ridiculous. They spend wardrobes. They get work done, you know, uh, hire trainers, nutritionists, everything. Because it's not about looking good in your photos. It's looking good in the background of someone else's photos as well. And I was like, oh, wow, okay. Uh, so I sent a link to my wife and her response was not what I was expecting. She asked if it was a joke. I, I believe she asked if it was a joke. I sent it to her and I was like, no, why? And the subject of the interview was a girl she went to high school with. <laughs> oh my God. I was like, no fucking way. That is, that is amazing. And from there, I was like, this is, this is fate. I have to write about this. Like, what if you just have something where just, where these people just, just die. And yeah, that's where the idea for uh, Coachella kind of started to grow. Uh, it's just a concert where a musician uh, gets a bunch of her stands to commit a uh, mass sacrifice for her behalf. It's super funny because when I, when I was like going through it, like even when you exaggerate things, it's still under exaggerating the reality. Like I'll look at my Instagram feed and like, I, I have a term where it's like very like affluent people always tend to wear like really white shoes and it's like a thing. And now there's this new movement of like super bleach blonde hair cause they like Pete Davidson and all wear white shoes and they're all part of the music industry and they get the $10,000 cabanas and like the when we were young fest thing, I heard that they were doing like three to ten thousand dollar cabana things for that. And I'm like, yeah. that's like two thousand like emo-ish bands. I mean, this is bizarre. So anytime you exaggerate in the story, I'm like, no, I've seen that. <laughs> uh so like I guess in like have you been to like big festivals like that? Or have you like do you know anyone that's like kind of like that where like I want to go stand out in the sun for three days straight and then either be on tons of drugs or just look really cute in photos. Uh, not quite that. I used to go to Warp Tour and uh, a few other ones. I forgot the one that I went to early on in the Meadowlands, but it was a pretty good uh, festival. But yeah, we just did shows like that. We didn't do the rent the cabana and sit here and it's all just photo opportunities or activations from sponsor booths. I mean, Comic-Con. Does that count? San Diego? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I have a crazy San Diego diet sometimes to try to get into shape. So that way, because I know my wife and I are going to go to random parties or you want to go to all the activity booths and get those promotional pictures that are just, you know, their marketing plan, but you still want it to look as good as possible. Um, yeah, I think it's just taking what I know from that world and putting it towards music. So I don't really know anyone who goes to, to Coachella. Um it's funny because I know like we both come from a musical background. So to think there's that aspect of music where it's more about 
the look and less about the performance? That's a really I mean, good question he asked. I, I mean, like the way I look at it is so there there is I'm warp tour, for example, is I'm going to watch a band. Mm-hmm. Coachella is whoa, I get to be at Coachella. <laughs> like, right, like in theory, the music should be the focus. Mm-hmm. But I think that's a byproduct of like, isn't this crazy that we get to do this, you know? And that kind of takes like a, a a front on it or whatever. Well, I saw someone talk about like WrestleMania and those wrestling shows that back in the day it was the acts that sold events. Now the events sell themselves, where people want to be a part of that type of event because they know it will be huge. Whereas, you know, even 10, 15 years ago, uh, even San Diego Comic-Con, let's say, uh, the the producers are asking talent or movie, you know, like uh, studios, what they have to bring over. And then it shifted to everyone trying to be a part of that cultural phenomenon. So, I mean, it's not too different than the nerd world. It's just, you know, uh, different focuses. I mean, how many times have you been at a convention and your booth is blocked by a Deadpool cosplayer taking photos? Yep, with a loud boombox or something. <laughs> something, yeah. Well, the, the funny thing is like, so the most recent one I did was C2E2 in, was that, I think, or that was like January or, or whatever it was. Okay. Uh, so the, whatever the winter C2E2 was. And it's funny because like my music world, like I'm, I'm used to, you set up merch, uh-huh. you sit there all day unabashedly, you try and sling your stuff and then you quote unquote, play for 30 minutes. <laughs> so the play for 30 minutes is throughout the day when you get to talk to people. <laughs> I'm yeah. like, yeah, hey, I got a thing. Oh my God, you're finally talking to me. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and then the the line thing is really funny because it's like when um, I forgot like uh, some of the like big name artists that I was like right across like the hall from. So this year it was different because of like the COVID regulations. So uh-huh. everything was spread out a little bit more. Whereas before it was like, you're kind of like packed like sardines. So you have to look at both sides of the tables. And it was funny because I'll I'll watch people start walking. And I think about like the work tour days where like whenever we would play, we were like, well, we're music first. Then we saw all these people like, hey, listen to my CD, do this, like all these weird auxiliary things. So then I started like taking a step back and watching it happen. So I'm like, let's have someone walk around with a CD player to sell CDs. So we started doing that and it worked. And then I was like, let's hold a sign with our set time. Cool, that works. Let's, uh," and we started just like adding those things. So when I'm doing cons now, I think in like warp tour mentality as like silly as that is, because yeah. as a writer, and you know this more than anyone, like you don't have your art to just be badass and show people. You have to do like um, pageantry to make people even look at you in the first place. So it, like it, the other thing is like, you're not going to have like consistent art because you're going to work with a bunch of different artists. Mm-hmm. So it's more of like, look at my shit. Ah, and then you get someone to stop for a second and then you have to start either pitching or like find some relatable thing. So the joke with music was like, Oh, awesome. I come with a romance. So if you love them, you're going to love my band. And here's why blah, blah, blah. So that's that like bullshit small talk thing that we all have to do too. Right. Like to yeah. get someone to stay at a booth long enough to pick up a comic and then consider it and then put it down. So <laughs> as like, I, I think we're in, and I talked about this before we started chatting, but I think we're in this like interesting place in comics where mm-hmm. all of us are like Twitter friends and when we'll go to a con, it's not like a bunch of people walking by are like, 
oh my god is that mario ah! like when they freak <laughs> out right ours is like these are all new people i need to win them over how do i do that and then we have yeah. the objective of like i'm gonna go schmooze with i think that person's an editor from something or whatever so like this kind of goes into like all of the stuff you're doing too but like i want to kind of dive into that part of things where there's like the diy music thing there's the diy comics thing and then at yeah. a certain point you're pitching to a label or a publisher or whatever so uh for those listening who maybe like haven't started doing comics yet or maybe they have for a long time or whatever like can you kind of describe the experience of like someone at our level that like has to try and get attention from someone else putting our heart and soul into like a fog line but maybe that didn't get like nationally distributed or something but it's like a badass comic like like those kinds of emotions and financial uh endeavors to make that kind of thing happen yeah um I feel I always make this joke uh, publicly and privately, but I feel like I'm a SoundCloud rapper right now. <laughs> I'm just online pitching my links, pitching my stuff, and I'm starting to get, you know, I'm not saying trying to get a following, but you're starting to get momentum. You start to get a lot of regulars who, you know, check out your stuff, and you know, to grow a base. And then, what's the next step? What does next step for you as an individual looks like after that? That's what creators need to know. I mean, there's some people who. Uh, Right now I see they're like 24 years old and they're getting deals with image and boom and living the best life. And you have people who are uh, older than me. I think I'm older than you, but <laughs> older than me in their forties who are, you know, still happy to sling comics on, not even Kickstarter, like just on their Substack for free because they're just happy to get something out there. Um, I guess what that, level looks like is individual to everyone i mean i think your goals are pretty much the same where i don't know if you want to work for marvel or dc exclusively but i believe correct me if i'm wrong but you would like to get attention for your stories maybe get something from marvel or dc to help build up your name so then you could sell your original ideas a little bit easier to other companies is that correct i i think that is like our world of like the natural trajectory uh and and my additional note my 1b of the the thing you just said (laughs) would be like i think there's the like holy shit i get to do spider-man like that's like childhood dream and then like adult additional dream is use the leverage of having done spider-man to go but also here's all my original stories that i get to do from scratch right so it's playing with someone else's toys and then making your own toys from scratch you think that's kind of like the bands who start out as cover bands to build a buzz for themselves and they start sneaking in originals? Yes. <laughs> like, <laughs> well, like that was always a joke too. And I, like, I know you were mentioning too that you were a promoter for a little bit. Like yeah. that's, that's part of that world where it's like, here's the sure thing. And then here's the thing I'm investing in and maybe they can bring people. I know these guys are going to play Journey at a certain point and then all the yeah. drunk people are going to like scream at the end of the night and then the bar is going to make a bunch of money. Or there's an indie band. Let's do the cover band. Yeah, okay, cool. It's the sure of course. Thing, right? um, but like, I think a, a different way of looking at it is you you kind of like jock from someone else when you first start. So that's uh-huh. your influence. And then you figure out your own thing and you have to like put out your own stuff. So that's like your demos or whatever. Then you find that like cool sophomore album that maybe is your like one shot or something. And then... Again, this is an exaggerated trajectory. And then maybe you get a Marvel or a DC, which is like your major label debut. And then 
you have to self-release the next album, <laughs> you know? <laughs> so it's not because you got dropped. Yeah. It's like, you know what? I'm going to take things in a new direction. I feel like that's kind of like a, a music uh, comic comparison. No, absolutely. I mean, it's like rappers who they get a feature on one of the bigger rappers is uh, song, right? And then from there, they have to try to capitalize on that success. They can either, you know, some people squander it. Unfortunately, other people use that and they take off. Uh, Jay-Z has made as many millionaires as people who have squandered that opportunity. Um, I think you, have to, you mentioned how I was a promoter for a bit and looking at what could help the venue, not just help your buddies get shows, right? Um, that's kind of, I feel like, what publishers are doing. You have the publishers who are just starting out and they're looking at, you know, the new talent that's coming up who has a name out there. But once those publishers start to get a little bit of name recognition for themselves, then you see that, that they start to attract the name of bigger talent that they might not have gotten in year one or year two. And then looking at from that aspect, uh, they might not necessarily start hiring creators that they would have in the beginning because when they're looking at name value of who can sell and you know who uh can move units which ultimately it's a business right it's all about trying to make as much profitability sometimes as much as putting out content that people like um keeping the lights on is is very important so they might go for a bigger name as opposed to a person who's starting out and i feel like that's uh that's another comparison for music as well just looking at what's good for the venue slash publisher versus what's good to help out a specific talent. Well, someone mentioned this too, where um, <laughs> weird comparison, like breaking the seal. So okay. if, if you, <laughs> like if you get in, in comics, the thing I've heard from everyone is be ready because you have to capitalize on that. And a bunch of people are going to finally open their doors to you. And yeah. it's super interesting because like, as let's say this like the new unsigned band or whatever you want to call it right like mm -hmm. i'm pitching to a venue or a publisher hey guys uh, i want to play uh here's my mp3s uh. and it's like mm -hmm. here's my five page story that i put out myself like that's why would why would someone do that right the yeah. reality of it is is in the back of my head i'm like this will pay off because now i have hopefully name recognition with this person and they'll see my progress because I'm going to annoy the shit out of them every so often with my demo or my comic or whatever. Uh, yeah. And then when you quote unquote level up to a certain point, then it's like, can I play tonight? And they're like, yeah, you know what? We'll pay you an exposure, but, but you can. And then that's when, poof, you know, hopefully that thing happens. Yeah. Yeah. That happens in comedy as well. A lot of the bigger names you see are because they've just been there. And they never stopped, you know, they could go to the venues and just not perform, but they're getting FaceTime recognition. Oh, hey, this person's been here for a while. Are they any good? I don't know. Put them on, you know, give them a five minute set, see what happens. Yeah. Like, uh, do you know Kyle Kinane? Are you familiar with him? Yeah. So, I don't know uh, him, but yeah. <laughs> so he's like very much intertwined with like punk rock stuff. Mm -hmm. um, so the fest in Gainesville, Florida, like a fest my bands used to, or well, still play some both of my bands were playing this year too, but awesome. uh, he will like do like a comedy set at this like punk music festival and mm -hmm. he could probably do bigger stuff, but he's like, no, these are my people. This is what I do. And so he's like kind of intertwined with that. And then through a friend of a friend or something like that, me and him were like friendly with each other online. I went to go see him in Detroit and we like hung out after. And all we talked about was like being like the, it's the same trajectory as comedians, musicians, 
Um, and then before we started recording, we were talking about like wrestling for a little bit too. Mm-hmm. Like indie yeah. wrestlers, comedians, musicians, comic creators, all of us are making a thing from nothing, whether mm-hmm. it's inter- it's just entertainment period, right? So you have to start by doing the shit yourself because no one will do it for you. You get pretty good at it. Eventually you might get a little bit of help along the way. And then you get in a flow enough to where you create a following or you endure long enough and then maybe something happens and then you get that next thing. But I think all of us have that thing where like, I'll get hit up by people that want to write their first comic or want to do art for a comic or whatever. And I think about like uh, my friend, Kyle Figley was like, he's a Michigan dude who like wrote for like wizard world and like is a reporter for CBR now and all, or he was like an old school comic dude forever. But I knew him from our like Flint, Michigan music scene. And he was the first guy that gave me like a stack of books. And my friend Sam did the same thing was like, you're kind of interested in comics. Take this shit. You're going to love it. And it was like sex criminals. And like, that's what made me like fall in love with Matt Fraction. Like your personality is like these things. This is what comics really is. Uh, And that was my gateway. So now I like, it's cool getting to do that for other people. Um, And not even being like a big name, but in the sense of like, oh, they're called trades. I could trade you this thing (laughs) and then you could fall in love with it. And then the same thing happened to me with like a punk rock CD when I was like nine with my older cousin who gave us that, you know? So it's the, the parallels are just insane. But I think like once you start realizing that everyone's kind of in the same boat, we're all like dumb little kids at heart that just have a big imagination. I had a guy in my comic shop when I was maybe 12 who and I was always just getting X-Men books and he's like no kid you gotta read this and he gave me the long Halloween he snuck it into my bag I didn't even pay for it <laughs> that's kind of like the guy who's just like oh you need to listen to this put the headphones on you see your world blow up right <laughs> you're like, oh, that's amazing <laughs> yeah you're talking about the parallels between all those genres it's a it's kind of the same because you have a whole subculture of people traveling the country in vans with merchandise trying to get gigs and you know uh that's that's their weekends for the most part um you said you joined the band right or sorry you started touring right after high school were you doing any shows while you're in school yeah um so i in 2002 is when oh. our band the swellers started so i was like a 14 year old kid my parents like drove us in a minivan to our first shows <laughs> um so then it was like high school figuring stuff out, kids throwing breadsticks at us at assembly things. And then like, eventually we're like, let's play real shows and not at our school. And then that's when it like became a thing, you know? You think you see that with, uh, I guess, the younger kids who are getting into comics um, where their parents might be like, I'll go to a convention with you or something. I like that same type of, uh, not stage mom, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, Enthusiasm, but kind of just like, I don't know what this is. This isn't my world, but my kid likes it. So I'm going to be here with them. Yeah. Well, I think I, like, really do, that many. Sorry. I, I do think Marvel like opened that up for a lot of people though. Okay. Where, like parents could understand it enough. Like I took my son to go see Spider-Man. He wants to go to a thing where a bunch of people dress like Spider-Man. Apparently I, I saw the movie. That's fine. And then now, you know, there's like that new wave of that kind of thing happening. Uh, it's kind of like, uh, this is an old movie, but um, role models. Paul Rudd had no idea what LARPing was without him and Nick Lovman were doing it. So <laughs> exactly. It's it's also funny thinking about how how long ago that really was. Cause I remember like LARPing was like this thing. And then now seeing how like 
obviously different world, but like how massive D and D is, you know? Yeah. And in our world, like I'll be on like, so when I was at C2E2, uh, I was with our friend, Lauren Walsh and Fabian, uh, Lele. So the, like, we went to this like big dinner thing and it was like this insane group. It was like 25 like gamers and D and Ders. And like, they all do, like, I don't, I play video games, but like, I've never played D&D in my life. And I've always wanted to, I just don't have time to commit to stuff. Yeah. Uh, and everyone's like talking. I'm just like sitting there like, I have no idea. What's... So I'm like, I'm just going to shut up and let people talk. And then at one point I was like, and I pulled my like Larry David card out. I'm like, can I ask you a question? If I, if I brought up that I've never done any of the stuff anyone's talked about all night, would you be mad? And the whole, it was like a record scratch and everyone looked at me. I'm like, Oh, I'm going to die. And everyone's like, Oh, can we give you recommendations? And then everyone, it was like this like flood of positivity. And then it was like having like 25 of those like wingmen being like, here's your first comment. Here's this. Blah, blah. So I was just like yeah. frantically writing like uh, was disco Elysium. I think that's like the game that a bunch of people play. Like there, there was like all of these like awesome suggestions I got. I, of course, they still are in my phone and I haven't done a lot of them, but, <laughs> but that's one of those things, right? Where like, when you're younger, you're like, oh my God, I got the long Halloween. I'm going to do this. Like, this is going to change my whole life. Yeah. I actually still have never done role-playing games. I have tons of friends that do. And I'm like, yeah, send me invites. Invites never come. No, I'm just kidding. Um, yeah. It's one of those things. You just don't have time really a lot of it. Um, but yeah, it's a lot of parallels with, I think back in the day, it used to be about bar cons and now people are getting together like, let's do a D&D session after the convention, you know, get a nice dinner and then just talk about all that stuff. And then, you know, uh, get, get a game going. Um, you mentioned uh, Fabian, Fabian Lillet, is that my right? So Lillet. the I have a quick anecdote. I did yeah. a, a, like a Nerdist show thing. And right before someone made a joke about his last name, like in our, like, I have like a comic group with a bunch of Twitter friends. Um, and I thought someone said Lily and I was like, really? So then on this like live stream thing, I was like, yeah, and Fabian Lily. So when I was saying his name earlier, I always had this hesitation now. Uh, yeah. and then before I even actually, I hit up, uh, so my friend Fabi Marks, I actually said, hi, dumb American guy question. How do you actually say your last name? <laughs> and because I was like, if we talk about off into the sunset, you were the colorist on my story. Can yeah. I, how do I say your name out loud? And she's like, I'm going to remember this moment forever. So anyway, Fabian Lele. That's the full circle story. But continue. <laughs> no, you're working with a really great team there. Um, well, if Bobby's awesome. But uh, Fabian, I know uh, Fabian's been around for a bit now. So tons of hits. I think he just finished a Mad Cave book. But you guys have this uh, story. Uh, I think I'm done. <laughs> um, it feels like a personal story if you don't mind me just getting a little deeper um if knowing a little bit about uh fabian as well but i want to ask you um it feels like a story about let's say uh consumption and hesitations to it is that something that you feel is the root of that story consumption in which way uh alcohol and um, you know, uh, so the funny thing is it implies that but it's not that I, I I read it a few times. I'm like, hold on, where's where's this going with this in the beginning and then at the end? Okay. Yeah. So um, the the backstory of that. So 
uh, when I was talking to Brett Harshman originally about the story, mm-hmm. um, I just finished Red Dead Redemption 2, which like that was my like red- uh, my pandemic game. I like I would like drink whiskey, play Red Dead or watch Mad Men. And I was like, okay. I was like, this is my like happy place. Like the world's not real right now. This is the only world that exists. And like, I got so obsessed with like Western shit. And like finally started going back and like watching like literally anything I could. Um, so one of my favorite things though, is like people just like having a good time drinking. But the, the true deep thing of that was that was around the time when touring completely stopped. Uh, because of the pandemic so like you couldn't have the live shows my in my literal dna it was i played music for at least five months a year for like 15 years or so at that point and and then it just stopped like on a dime so the story normally i don't like reveal exactly what the story is about but that's a super personal one for me because it's literally about me being like i I think I'm done with music. Like, I think I need to move on. Um, but in the context of like how someone would do it in a Western. Um, okay. So there's all these like metaphors for struggle or whatever, but it's really like the shit I was dealing with internally where mm-hmm. I'm like, oh, I think I have to be a new person now because of the circumstances. No, it's really beautifully laid out. And like I said, I've read it a couple of times. It's like, all right, it starts off like this, but that seems to be a deeper metaphor uh what's that line from westworld let's just talk about western shit uh lies that reveal lies that reveal a deeper truth <laughs> yeah um no i mean uh that's that's a really well put together story um the action is really nice i like that and of course you said bobby did a amazing job with the colors it's really bright and uh, vibrant uh you mentioned red dead too nice. i love that game i have a poster of it right here uh, you can't see it's out of frame, and this is an audio podcast. So you just picture Mario. <laughs> Hold it up so we still can't see it. <laughs> <laughs> no, I can't reach that. I'm going to knock everything over. I have a whole lighting set up. You got to commit to the bit, Mario. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, that, that didn't feel like a normal video game in the way of just like, oh, I'm going to sit here and mash buttons. That felt like an experience. So you taking the heavy content of Arthur Morgan and his crew, uh, you know, and of course, uh, spoiler alert, his death at the end. And you also taking uh, Mad Men, which is dealing with, of course, the breakdown of this ideal man in a time where there's a lot of turmoil in America, uh, and then writing a comic during it. Is, do you feel that that influence is a deep well that you will continue to draw from? Or is that specific to that time and moment that you were in? I think with, this is a strange, I guess, comparison, but you know, when you're around 13 years old and whatever music you hear at that time, you're like, that's like my all time favorite album. And for Mm -hmm. some reason, that's like this, like weird nostalgic truth for you. Um, For me, when the pandemic was like rewiring, like, or the original, like (laughs) uh, COVID lockdown, right? Like when, when all that was first happening, I was like, I am so overloaded with the world that I need to rethink everything in my life and my brain actually rewired. So introducing those two things, they taught me two different things. Um, Mad Men taught me that um, the human condition and the gray area of life is like the most important thing. Um, Mm -hmm. Because if you don't acknowledge that, then you're not really acknowledging the truth of the world. Um, And then Red Dead for me was 
it's not all about the action. You don't need explosions. You don't need constant whatever. It's how do you have the drama? And then those are the climaxes to that drama. So instead okay. of just a fight, maybe someone gets shot, right? So I kind of wanted to incorporate those kinds of concepts. But to your question, like I pull from both of those a lot. I actually just restarted watching Mad Men just to like get nice. in that space again. Um, because I think there's a way of, um, and this sounds so cheesy to say, like I could write this and it sounds cool. And then I say it out loud and I'm like, I'm like, I say rad and gnarly and stuff. So it's weird. <laughs> but I think, I think there's like a real, there's a real beauty and vulnerability. And I think when you can have someone who, that's why like Westerns to me are so appetizing. Um, when you could have this big rugged guy who's a gunslinger and just like shoots people all the time and robs banks and does whatever, whether that's my story or Red Dead or most Westerns, right? Like giving that person the shred of like, I want to, I want to experience something else. I think I'm ready for it. And that's like a heavy life-changing thing. So when you allow someone to do that, which I think all of us in different ways feel that in a time in our lives, um, it kind of like kicks you in your, <laughs> in your brain's ass, let's say like, <laughs> cause you're like, Oh, I didn't, I didn't have to think about that way before. Now this is heavy. Like I just finished watching Barry and I feel that shades of that are born in Westerns and just the character arc of temporal moments of, you know, you're faced with the situation. How will you meet that challenge versus how you would have met it, you know, prior to whatever catalyst was that changed your life at the moment? Yeah. Like, so Barry actually is one of two of the main influences on my writing period. Awesome. <laughs> um, so like, there's like other stuff that i won't be able to talk about for like four years or whatever because it's comics yeah. but like that's that barry and then there's a show called patriot on amazon prime um if I'm you good. like barry i will literally pay people to watch that um it's one of the best shows i've ever seen um but it's like imagine barry but like even more bizarre and dry but then like you're okay. so emotionally attached to these people it's it only lasted two seasons but it's the guy that did uh, the Secret Life of Walter Mitty, and it's like okay. super surreal and just amazing. Um, but anyway, is that the uh, one with Julia Roberts? No. Um, okay. It's so it, it's it's funny because so the fact that it's called Patriot, you're like, oh, yeah. it's the Patriot with Mel Gibson or something. It's like a weird <laughs> like overseas espionage thing. Okay. Uh, but anyway, in closing, I think uh, that that kind of like bizarre like with all of us in comics, we can look at something like that or Barry or Mad Men or whatever and go, oh, there are no rules. Like, why, why am I thinking so conventionally when I could change something? Real quick praise for Otis, by the way. Otis is your story and often in the sunset. Super rad. Um, it's, it's cool watching what seems like a conventional thing and then it kind of like twists your brain a little bit as it goes. Um, I also love, I think you have this like, here's a nice thought provoking thing. And then I'm going to just step on your heart at the end. <laughs> and that's like my, and I think that's like a really cool twist that I'm seeing in a lot of your writing, which is cool. Um, but beyond that, uh, I know we're only friends on Twitter, but now I'm seeing you in real life through a screen. Um, it's great talking to you. I think you're a rad dude. And I'm super stoked on all the stuff that you have in your comic future. Thank you. I mean, uh, I, I can speak from the heart and say that you are one of the kindest people I see online constantly. You're, you're very supportive of our entire scene. Uh, you share and retweet things. Um, you even just reach out and just 
interact with some things i'm just like oh crap you saw that <laughs> um no it just feels genuine and that comes through in your writing i know uh and we were just talking before a lot of the uh the deep dive i did into your catalog seems to be born from your experiences on tour and on the road and you take a you take a lens to experiences that you've had and those personal feelings and you gift that to readers to say okay this is a glimpse into how who you are as a person and maybe uh core moments in a way that i think you have a big future in slice of life stuff as well as bigger things like what you're doing in inevitables with uh, liana congress that seems like a really big story i can't wait to read more of that same (laughs) but yeah (laughs) man I, i appreciate it and again like i think the most important things with comics is sticking together and recognizing that like all of us are growing together um and because we're the network that kind of shapes the future stuff. So I'll be right. Thank you to Mario and Jono for joining us for this discussion. Mario's work can be found at theothermariosea.com and Jono's work can be found at jonodiner.com. Jono also has coffee available at rootlesscoffee.com. They're both active on Twitter and Instagram, and I'll put all the links in the episode description. Special thanks to Matt Campbell for composing our music and Patrick Hart for designing our logo. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Creators on Comics Podcast. <laughs>